Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's preacher is Donald Gray Barnhouse. After high school, Barnhouse enrolled in Biola, Bible Institute of Los Angeles. He studied doctrine with Reuben Archer Torrey, and he did personal work with Thomas Corwin Horton. Torrey took a personal interest in Barnhouse, allowing him to borrow his personal study notes and copy whatever he wanted. Later on, one of Barnhouse's professors at Princeton Seminary said, Donald Barnhouse got his theology from Biola, not Princeton. Today, Donald Barnhouse presents a study on true belief versus unbelief. chapter of the gospel according to Mark. And I read one line out of verse 5 and one line out of verse 6. Jesus could there do no mighty work. And verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. He could do there no mighty work and he marveled because of their unbelief. Now Matthew and Luke say that he did no other mighty works there, but Mark says he could do no mighty works there. Matthew adds he did no mighty works there because of their unbelief, and if we put these two passages together, it adds up to that Jesus could not do any mighty works there because of their unbelief, and then Jesus marveled at their unbelief. Now, if all this does not fit your concept of the nature of Jesus Christ, you just have to change your concept of Christ, because the Word of God is plain. We're here faced with the mystery of the Incarnation. Jesus could do no mighty works there. I, I cannot explain all of this, and yet I believe it. There was a barrier. Jesus was God, and yet there are certain things where he limited himself. He imposed certain restraints on himself, and I think as we uh, look at it more closely, we can see why that Jesus could do no mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, it's very interesting to me to note that only twice in all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, does it say that Jesus marveled. Now, the other instance is in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 10. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 10, the Lord Jesus came face to face with a captain of the Roman army. This man had evidently been stationed in Palestine a long time, but he was a Gentile. But as he had lived in the country, he had evidently studied their religion and knew something about it. And when the man's servant was sick, this centurion came to the Lord Jesus Christ and said, my servant is sick. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. And the centurion said, oh, don't trouble yourself to come. I am a man under authority, and I have the habit of saying to this man, go, and he goes. And to this man, come, and he comes. Uh, and so all that I ask that you do is that you send your word. Just speak the word, and my servant will be healed. And in verse 10 of Matthew 8, when Jesus heard it, he marveled. 
and said to them that followed, Verily I say to you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Now, surely it is by the design of the Holy Spirit that we should have these two verses in the Gospels that Jesus marveled. Once he marveled because of faith that he found in a certain man of no background, and in our text in Mark, he marvels because there is no faith in the lives and hearts of those who should have had the most. Faith and unbelief do not depend upon the opportunity and background of the individual. They depend upon the bent of the will. Oh, yes, there are undoubtedly millions of people who have the religion that their parents had. But when you come to the realm of true faith, it may rise just as quickly in an individual who has been brought up in the background of Confucianism or Buddhism or of some pagan religion, tribal religion in the heart of Africa as in someone who has been brought up in the shadow of the church. And on the other hand, you may find frequently desperate unbelief in someone who has had every opportunity to believe who has known of truth mentally. Now when we read that Jesus could do no mighty works there because of their unbelief, it does not mean at all that man's unbelief is greater than God's power. There is no doubt of the fact that God is omnipotent and he can do according to his will. But God always works according to the laws of his own being and the laws of his attributes. Christ had all power. But Jesus Christ would not force his blessings upon those who did not wish to receive them. And that's why he could do no mighty works there. They just did not want to be blessed. And the Lord Jesus Christ was not going to violate their personalities by forcing upon them that which they did not want. Sometimes when we discuss faith, I think we put an entirely too low a view on the purpose of the miracles that God performed in Jesus Christ. Surely it's true if we turn to John chapter 20 and verse 31, we read that Jesus did many mighty works and these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. But surely a miracle for the purpose of creating belief is only a subsidiary motive in the mind of God. When the Lord Jesus Christ healed someone, it wasn't, now there, see that power? You better believe in me. When the Lord Jesus Christ touched someone, it was because there was a going forth from his heart of love. He was moved with compassion. When Jesus came and raised Lazarus from the dead, it wasn't a trick to say, now there, you believe in me. Surely that evidence does stand, and if a man does not believe that the condemnation of that man is very great. But Jesus wept when Lazarus was dead, and the Jews that were standing by said, behold how he loved him. And there was love there. And whenever the Lord Jesus Christ did any work upon this earth, it was the going forth of his love, his power, there was his desire to help, there was his willingness, and every act that the Lord Jesus Christ performed while he was here upon the earth was the, the flowing forth of the inner nature of his being. And then, in the subsidiary way, those acts do stand to create faith in him.
But the proof that these acts were not given, were not performed merely in order to uh, convince the unregenerate is that he did not perform these acts in the midst of his enemies. He did not go and raise someone from the dead in front of the Pharisees. He did not go and perform his greatest miracles uh, there where the skeptics were the greatest, but there where he was most loved, in the heart, uh, where the heart moved toward him, he answered that movement of the heart. And it was heart going forth to heart, the going forth of the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when people did not believe, he marveled. And when the man who had not had the scriptural background uh, to know the Old Testament, Jesus marveled also. Now, let us look at this truth in relationship to our own life. He marveled because of their unbelief. Does the Lord Jesus Christ marvel because of your unbelief? Is there in day by day in the Christian life, is there an unbelief that keeps him from doing all that he wants to do? Christ can do nothing for us if we are in unbelief. Now, I'm not talking about the unsaved. If there's anyone here who is not born again, there is no doubt of the fact that God wants you to come to the place where you build your hope on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. There is no doubt of the fact that the skeptic, the atheist, the unsaved man must be confronted with the cross of Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ must be seen as the answer to the problem of unbelief. But here, when I speak to you of Jesus marveling at unbelief in uh, the individual, this, this was unbelief in his hometown. This was definitely in the place where Jesus had been brought up, where they'd seen him, and where they had formed a, an opinion of him that was contrary to what was the fact. They had looked superficially. They had seen nothing more than the fact that Jesus Christ was uh, among them as the carpenter's son. But now the Lord Jesus Christ marvels at their unbelief. And I, I want to see the marvel of the unbelief that is in the heart of any Christian any day. I'm not talking about intellectual assent to doctrines and the historical facts of the gospel. Very, very probably there are few people here in this room who are professed atheists. Very, very probably there are few people here who would deny the historical facts of New Testament truth. Probably there are few people that are here that would disbelieve that Jesus Christ came, that Jesus Christ lived, that Jesus Christ died, that Jesus Christ rose, and that uh, he, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, is the answer to the problems. But here you see you've got the intellectual faith, and this is not the thing I'm talking about. All of the belief in the intellectual precepts, all of this may be in the mind without there being a true commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. For this is the heart of true faith. Not that you recite the creed. Now don't misunderstand, I believe in the creed. And I believe every phrase in the creed is true. But faith 
does not consist in reciting it. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. That's recited by several hundred million people on this earth today. It's recited by everybody in the world that went to a Roman Catholic church today and everybody that went to a Greek Catholic church or a Russian Orthodox church today. And in myriads of Protestant churches, that great, great statement was given forth. And it's a good thing to have it there as a bulwark against the sweeping tides of unbelief. But believe me, dear friends, the recital of the creed, as I say, is, is in the mind and heart, but true faith is a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. For faith, in the Bible sense of the term, faith contains belief. But belief is not all of faith. There is something much more in true faith than a mere belief. For faith, I would define faith as belief plus a total commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Lord Jesus marveled when he found such a commitment on the part of the pagan centurion. And here he marveled when he did not find it among the people whom he had touched at closest range. Now, I want to take this into the, the depths of your Christian life. I want to bring you beyond the, the act of faith where you said, Oh, I take Jesus Christ as my Savior. I believe he died for me, therefore I'm not going to hell, therefore I am going to heaven. There are some people, undoubtedly, who think of salvation in terms of Jesus did something that closed the door to hell so you can't go through it and opened the door to heaven so you do go through it. I, I know a man who once quoted Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised thee from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now he said, I believe this. And he said, the man that believes this, he's got his nose over the line. And he says, I've got my nose over the line and that's enough. And I said, that's not enough. That is not enough. If you have a low faith, a low standard that salvation is nothing more than a sort of cheap insurance policy to keep you from the flames of hell, you have not understood the reality of what faith is. For salvation, salvation is a new creation. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, and this means new life, and this means new love, and this means new desires, and this means a new direction of the will. And this means a new center for living. And this means a new acceptance of the course of life. Realizing the sovereignty of God in even the littlest events of life. My, how I have learned that personally. Not only in these past weeks, but over the course of the years to realize this glorious truth that there's nothing, nothing, nothing that can ever touch the Christian that has not been sieved in the very fine mesh sieve of the will of God. Oh, when once these great truths take hold upon us, then we understand that faith is the total commitment of the life to the Lord Jesus Christ in every area. And this is why then we must realize the nature of true faith and why Jesus marveled at their unbelief. And that he could do no mighty works there because of that unbelief. Now if we stop to realize the nature of the powers that God displays on behalf of his people, we will understand why God cannot exercise those powers in certain conditions. 
What are the powers whereby the Lord Jesus Christ works in our hearts? Well, he works by his truth. He works by his love. He works by his Holy Spirit. Now, how can a truth operate in the heart of the individual if the truth is not believed? And I dare to say that there are many of you people who have an intellectual truth and assent to some doctrine in the head where you truly do not commit yourself to it and bring that truth to an operative force in the daily life. And this is the place where your unbelief blocks the advance of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sets forth truth for you, and you say, yes, that's true. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus, but let something happen and you flutter around like a chicken with its head cut off, and you just jump here, there, and there. And there are so many, many Christians that in so many domains of life will, will glibly sometimes with the lips speak forth high truth, and yet we know that the truth is not operative in the life. And as I say, Jesus could do no mighty work because of their unbelief. And if the truth is glibly accepted and not believed, it can never become operative. The same thing is true of his love. How can his love bless and cherish if it's not trusted? You may, say, you may have someone that loves you profoundly, and that person may do everything for you, and if you look with suspicion at every act that they do, that love can never really become operative for you. Suspicion of love is, is the end of love's working. Love can't work against suspicion. And how many, many, many people there are who, who, who literally seem to suspect the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it can't be that good, is the attitude that Christians frequently have. And so Jesus can do no mighty work of love in your hearts because you will not trust and accept that love. And then is the Holy Spirit. You, you know the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. You, you glibly call him the Holy Spirit. But how can he hallow, make you holy? How can he cleanse if he is not yielded to? If, if we do not allow him to come in in his sweeping fullness and break down the barriers, uh, how can the fullness of the Holy Spirit be found? He could do no mighty works there because of their unbelief. And so the condition of, of true work in your life is inherent in three things, in the nature of God the giver, and in the nature of man the receiver, and in the nature of the gifts that are bestowed. It was Alexander McLaren that pointed out this, this trinity of, of differences and conditions. God is the giver, man is the receiver, and the gifts are the gifts of his love, of his power, and of his truth. And naturally they cannot operate unless they operate according to the laws that are in God, and that are in us, and that are in the truth themselves. All our lives we've heard the common analogies. Faith is a door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Open the door. If the believer will open the door, the Lord will sup in fellowship. Now, I personally do not apply that to the unregenerate man. I apply it to the Christian. For that, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man, I believe that refers to any, any believer as the context to me demonstrates 
and what the Lord is saying to you, to me as, as Christians, as those who have professed to commit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I want you to open the door and, and I'll come in and sup with you. Now it's wonderful to have someone to come in and sit down at your table. If someone comes in and spends tw half an hour or even an hour in your house in the middle of the afternoon, it's not as much as if they'd come at lunch or at dinner time. There's something about sitting down at the table and eating together that uh, is a greater fellowship than uh, sitting talking across a couple of armchairs. And this is what the Lord says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any believer uh, will open his door, his heart to me. Well, you said, I opened the door and he came in as Savior. Yes, but we're talking about something infinitely greater than this. We're talking about the flood tides of love and power. We're talking about that which shall dominate every phase of the heart and life and being. And the supping in fellowship is there if faith will open that door. Then there's the common illustration of faith as the stretched out hand. But Jesus could do no mighty works there because of their unbelief. How could he give anything? How could you give anything to a child if the child had his hands behind him or let the hands drag down and the fingers prolonged and, and, and not being willing to receive? There must, there must be the action of that which joins. And the Lord Jesus Christ constantly gave us this as a, as a measure of our blessing. He, he said that he was here on earth, according to your faith, be it unto you. And in Psalm 81, it's open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. Now, positionally, those of us who have believed in Christ, we have everything. We are filled unto all the fullness of God. But conditionally, the working limit for us is our own faith. Everything is available in God. But how much are we going to have? As I say, there is no limit from God's point of view, but the working limit in our own lives depends on how much we lay hold upon by faith and appropriate. Now, this same problem that applies to the individual applies to the whole church. Why is the church so weak before the world? Certainly, a church that's filled with half-believing members cannot achieve great victories. The church sometime, I think, is like the disciples. And we read in the book of the Acts that they came to a man and they tried to face the difficulties that were in him because the man was possessed of a demon. And the demon cried out, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And it seems to me that that is the word that's spoken by the unbelieving world today. They say, well, we know Jesus, but who are you who pretend to talk in his name? And one day the disciples had this same difficulty when Jesus was here. They met, a they met a man possessed with a demon and they could not cast him out. And when they turned and asked Jesus why, in Matthew 17, 20, Jesus said you could not cast him out because of your unbelief. And we should realize that the Lord Jesus Christ faced his closest disciples in Luke 24 and on the day of the resurrection. As he had risen from the dead, he met these two people that were on their home, the road to Emmaus. I always think this was the queerest thing in the world that shows the height of unbelief of God's people. For these two people were on their way home to Emmaus, Cleopas and probably his wife Mary. And on that morning he had said, come on, let's go home. And they gotten up and started their dull, faithless road. And Jesus met them.
And they were so sad. And he said, why are you sad? Oh, Jesus is dead. There was a rumor around town this morning that he was raised from the dead. There was a rumor that he was raised from the dead. Did you say, did you stay to verify it? No. And we discover in Luke 24, verse 25, that Jesus said to them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And isn't this the upbraiding with which the Lord Jesus Christ must confront you and me too often? Oh, we have these promises. There's a rumor around that the Lord Jesus Christ has power and fullness. What do you do about it? Let's go home. And that's what they did on the morning of the resurrection. Even though the rumor of the resurrection had spread, they did not stay to verify it. McLaren, in his sermon on this text, came to a very dramatic end for the final sentence in his sermon. After he had preached on this unbelief, he said, I beseech you, do not let this be the epitaph on your tombstone. Christ could there do no mighty work because of his unbelief. But isn't it true in many, many hearts that Christ does not do mighty works within you because of your unbelief? Now, I, I believe I must comfort and protect this, comfort you and protect this truth in one way. If, if God does not make a Wesley or a Moody or a Spurgeon or a Billy Graham out of every hillbilly preacher and ma every preacher in the country, it's not because these men went on and had something more than someone else. For the wind bloweth where it listeth, and the work of God has in it the great characteristic of sovereign grace. And there is no doubt that God picked out Paul and said, as we read in our scripture this morning, he's a chosen vessel unto me, and God has those chosen vessels. But you see, as God looks out over the problem, as uh, the world, as God looks out over your heart and mine, God is not asking every one of us that we be a Paul or a Wesley or a Moody. God is not asking that. God is asking each one that as he has made us and in the circumstances where he has placed us with the capacity perhaps very limited that he has given to us individually so that uh, we have just our ability to do what we must do day by day. What God is asking us is that we yield to him in fullness that capacity which we has given, which he has given us. God is not going to judge you if you are not a tremendous vat that will hold 500 million gallons of gasoline. If you're a pint cup, God says, what I ask of you is that your pint cup be yielded to me. That wherever I've put you and in the limits of your life and there where you are, you yield fully to me and allow faith to come so that faith can take my life as it flows out toward you. That faith can take the truth that I give you, lay hold upon it, and bring it out of the domain of the intellect into the domain of the living. And that his love can be received and trusted, and that our hand shall go confidently to his as a child's hand goes to the parent. And that the Holy Spirit shall be accepted, and that we say to him, Dear Heavenly Father, May I not be faithless, but whatever there is in me that can answer toward thee, may it come back to thee in power.
Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if he could marvel at our faith rather than marvel at our unbelief? Only twice did he marvel at one man's faith and at another's unbelief. And this, right in our hearts and in our day-by-day action, is how we must live towards God so that as he looks upon us, he will see there what he wants so much to see, that love answers to love, that heart commits itself to truth, and that life submits itself to the Holy Spirit. Let us bow in prayer. God our Father, we pray thee that thou shalt take these truths so important and minister them to our hearts. Lord, we pray thee that thou shalt in a real way give us faith to lay hold of thy promise. And above all, that we should not think merely of faith as intellectual assent to certain truths, but as a a total commitment of mind to truth, of heart to love, and of life to the Holy Spirit. And we give thee the praise through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.